Hello and welcome to Hide Key Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our procession through the life of Alexander the Great with a focus on the Battle of Gaudamela. Last time, as I'm sure you illustrious listeners recall, we had a quick little heater of an episode about the Siege of Gaza. And while it wasn't covered in as much detail as the Siege of Tyre by our ancient sources, the culmination of the two sieges were very crucial for events we'll be covering today. In that episode, I also gave a quick rundown of events between the two sieges and the Battle of Gaudamela, saving us some work and enabling me to focus more on the aftermath of the battle in today's episode. Anyway, before we get into the content of today's episode, let's get into the programming reminders. Remember, people, please, 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 please be sure to follow the show on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High T.O. Podcast. Also, be sure to drop those five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Help the show get up the rankings, get up the charts, all that good stuff. And, you know, helps with walk-up traffic, say someone searches for the Battle of Isis or Alexander the Great, and then boom, they find High Tea Obsessed. They see tons and tons of five-star ratings and reviews. Guess what? They're locking into this. And, of course, I just appreciate it. You know, it makes me feel good. But that is enough baiting. Let us get into today's episode. We left Alexander and the Macedonians chilling in Tyre after laying siege and sacking Gaza and then spending several months in Egypt, catering to the ruling class there, visiting the oracle at Siwa, laying the foundations for Alexandria. But honestly, like in the grand scheme of things, the way things have been going, they're mostly chilling, to be honest with you. Alexander and his army would then spend a few months convalescing in Tyre, hosting a festival, preparing for the decisive campaign to come against Darius III in the Persian Empire. While in Tyre, Alexander sent to Antipater, he's like, hey, my man, need some reinforcements for Macedonia. And he did this despite the Spartan king, Aegis III, rising to wage a war against Macedonia in the lead of Corinth. So that means Alexander either hadn't heard of it yet or just wasn't too concerned about it. If so, you know, right call proved not to be a major issue. Later, he might have even called it a battle of mice, which, you know, unfair comparison, but none of that really matters here because we're focusing on Alexander the Great. It's beyond the scope of what we're covering in the season of this podcast. So, Thomas, leave it alone. Leaving it alone, Thomas. Anyway, as part of his preparation to march out from Tyre, Alexander actually ended up firing his quartermaster, who was in charge of getting supplies ready, and he replaces him with someone else. So, don't know how serious of a failing our guy, we don't know how serious of a failure our guy was, but, you know, Alexander gets a bad rep, some catches a lot of flat for not really caring about how his empire was run, how his army was run, and just being a gifted commander, but I do think it's important to call him out when we get them, the instances that show Alexander was someone who had his thumb on this, someone who did keep track of the way his army at least was being administered because logistics matter when you're waging campaigns in enemy territory, and so he clearly cared about them, at least insofar as it meant equipping him to do battle. Alexander's decision to focus on supplies made sense particularly because with around 40,000 infantry and 7,000 cavalry at his disposal, this was easily the largest field force Alexander would march with and command to this point. With his bit of HR work done and the supply situation adequately handled at this point, Alexander and the Macedonians set out from Tyre in July, and the main force reached the banks of the Euphrates River shortly thereafter. An advanced force had secured the area and built two bridges 
And this comes despite the fact that the Persian satrap Mazaeus had orders to hold the Macedonians for as long as possible. Mazaeus was equipped with something like 3,000 cavalry and maybe 2,000 mercenaries. And basically, he's, you know, he sees the Macedonians coming and he just beats his retreat as soon as he sees them. Made sense, you know, he didn't have the army to kind of even really bottle these guys up at all. Probably could have done something, but he said, you know, what's better than doing something? Living. At this stage, both Alexander and Darius weren't super aware of where the other was, nor were they super aware of what they were up to. You know, obviously, Alexander knows Darius is gathering an army, getting them ready to attack me. Darius knows Alexander's trying to get him but they didn't have a super detailed look at what the other was doing. And this left Alexander with a choice. There were two principal paths towards Babylon. One was more direct and would involve, mar- and would involve marching along the Euphrates River up the Euphrates Valley to Babylon. One advantage of this would be that since the army would remain mostly along the river, they'd be able to offload a lot of the burden of carrying supplies and equipment onto boats. However, the weather, specifically the temperature, would be very, very unbearable along this route. On the plains, the summer temperature was incredibly hot, reaching today about like 120 degrees, which is, I think, like 49 degrees Celsius. And, you know, that stuffy, dry heat, desert, a lot of dust sticking to you, it's going to counter a lot of the advantages that offloading the equipment would, would bear, right? Because we got the extra weight off us, but the heat, the dust, the exhaustion of that sapping on the army is going to really tats morale and make it difficult for them to keep the spirits up, keep the fighting ready to go. Additionally, this path would bring them more directly in the path of several walled cities and settlements, and since Darius III was still in the region with a large army, things want to go along the same lines as they had in the western portions of the empire. It was very likely that these cities with that giant Persian army in the region would dig in. You know, they're banking on Darius III arriving, pinning Alexander down, or driving him away. And also, you know, that's no way to conduct business as a conqueror. You can't be trying to lay siege to these cities with a giant army remaining unchecked behind you. That's a recipe for disaster. The second option facing Alexander was to head north to the Tigris River. So if you remember, you know, Sixth grade social studies flashback land between the rivers Mesopotamia that was between the Tigris and Euphrates River. This path would be much more time consuming en route to Babylon, but overall would just be much easier. And Alexander and his army marched nearly 300 miles to the Tigris River and cross it. There's a little confusion on this, at least among the modern sources I consulted. But it seems they crossed the Tigris River against a fierce current probably during the day of September 20th, though it might have been the 19th. He then gave his army two days to recover from this arduous crossing, and during this little siesta, there was a lunar eclipse, which must have just seemed a disastrous omen to those uneducated amongst the army. So here's the thing, educated Greeks apparently knew what an eclipse was, what it represented, and, you know, ancient Greeks ancient Greek history at large, not my field, so I cannot say that definitively that is true. However, that is what I read, so not untrue. But anyway, you know, they're recovering from this. Lunar eclipse happens. That's how we know, like, pretty exactly when this battle happened. And so on the night of September 20th into the 21st, there was this lunar eclipse. 
Aristander, faithful seer of Alexander, proclaimed that the omen was good for them, but bad for the Persians and Darius III. And so that matter settled, the army continues east, eventually encountering a force they initially believed to be the main Persian army, until a scout came racing back to inform the chain that there were maybe about a thousand Persian cavalry present. The chain and his companions raced out, managing to capture or kill a few of the stragglers, or those whose mounts had died underneath them, and gaining for the first time some reliable intelligence on the location and number of Darius III and the Persian host. From there, Alexander established a fortified camp for the baggage train and treasures, as well as camp followers, civilians, and whatnot, and advanced on his enemy. And that brings us to a little bit of story time. Always fun. There's a tradition, a set of stories that, following the Battle of Issus, Darius III sent envoys and letters to Alexander, hoping to persuade the Macedonian king to stop his conquest, and also, you know, hey man, stop invading me while you're at it, if you I don't know if this is out of line. Could you return my family to me? First of these came probably before the Siege of Tyre, like pretty close to the battle, or to after the Battle of Issus ended. And I think it's fair to characterize this one as pretty demanding and even whiny. Basically, the vibe of this is like, give me my family back. Also, why are you attacking me? He's like, our, you know, your father and Artaxerxes, great relationship going on. Your dad didn't renew him with Arces, my predecessor. Don't know what that's about. Like, we could be boys again. No reason for these hostilities. Alexander, a fan of the tone of the letter, not a fan of the letter at all. He replies, not very kind. Basically says, you're a usurper. So even if my father had good relations with your predecessor, it's got nothing to do with us. Also, you killed your predecessor, so that's got, like, you're not making good points, my guy. He also was like, I'm attacking you because your country insulted mine years before. And he also, you know, he had a list of grievances he rattled off. It wasn't quite hit him up level. You know, it wasn't Tupac out here, but it was pretty brutal of a response by our guy Alexander. And I'm going to quote Arian here for what apparently the rest of Alexander's letter to Darius III read. But now I have defeated in battle first your generals and satraps, and now you in person and your army, and by the grace of the gods I control the country. All those who fought on your side and did not die in battle but came over to me, I hold myself responsible for them. They are not on my side under duress, but are taking part in the expedition of their own free will. Approach me, therefore, as the lord of all Asia. If you are afraid of suffering harm at my hands by coming in person, send some of your friends to receive proper assurances. Come to me and ask and receive your mother, your wife, your children, and anything else you wish. Whatever you can persuade me to give shall be yours. In the future, whenever you communicate with me, send to me as king of Asia. Do not write to me as an equal, but state your demands to the master of all your possessions. If not, I shall deal with you as a wrongdoer. If you wish to lay claim to the title of Cain, then stand your ground and fight for it. Do not take to flight, as I shall pursue you, wherever you may be. Unfucking quote. But goddamn, my boy. Again, as always, these direct quotes are likely entirely made up, and if not properly heavily embellished, you know, I gotta do my lame little disclaimer there. This is probably more representative of what Arian believed Alexander would have written. 
But, you know, perhaps grain of sand, little minute possibility here. Arian might have had a source that's now lost to us. That'd be dope. Either way, being like, you know, if you want your family, come talk to me yourself and you can have whatever you can convince me to give you. Address me as Cain, like just dressing Darius the Third down and being like, basically it was the original Taken, like, I will find you and I will kill you. Elite levels of shit talking. I love to see it. I don't know if you listeners love to see it. I hope so. If you're listening to this show, you know, that's the vibe we've rocked with around here, but just incredible stuff. Love it. Love to see it. And if not great writing by Arian, let's get him a book deal. You know, let's get him on the, the stitch writing some fiction. Another offer would come in a similar vein, but this time an actual offer, not just a demands, uh, containing some grants of money and land. The third, which is sometimes placed here on the eve of the battle and other times placed during or shortly after the Siege of Tyre, also very interested. Darius III's final offer to Alexander for his family and to prevent further hostilities was this. All of the land west of the Euphrates River, about half of the Persian Empire, just massive, unprecedented, even just like Darius sending the first letter to Alexander was unprecedented and raised him above the level of some like random barbarian king into like a, not like an equal of the great king, but you know, someone worth talking to. So that was notable. Now this huge concession by itself notable. Further, he offered up 10,000 talents of gold as ransom, insane amount, and the, the hand in marriage of his eldest daughters to Tyra to Alexander. At this point, Alexander responded by saying, you know, I have no need of the money. Recently, you know, as you may recall, won a great battle over you, conquered your baggage train. I got a lot of money on hand. Cash rich. Already also, you may remember, I've conquered those lands that you offered me. I'm already in control of them, so nothing for me there. Also, also, already in possession of your daughter. So if I want to marry her, I can. So I don't know if our guy, Darius III, where he went to negotiating college, might need to go back, might need to take some fresher courses. It's also this final offer that Parmenio is supposed to have given the response. You know, if I were you, I'd accept that. And Alexander replies, I would too, were I Parmenio. As Adrian Goldsworthy points out in Philip and Alexander Kings and Conquerors, it is entirely plausible that this and all the other Alexander and Parmenio foil stories are later inventions and that the common theme in them, which do occasionally feature Alexander Green with his older advisor, the common theme isn't that Parmenio was always wrong, but that Alexander was always right. Which is important because we have to remember that just diminishing his contemporaries and rivals doesn't raise Alexander if both were also incredibly skilled and Alexander was just simply more skilled. I think it makes him look more impressive in the aggregate. Adrian Doldsworthy also points out that in addition to the PR reasons and the fact that, you know, from what we can tell, accepting this offer just wasn't in Alexander's nature, wasn't in his makeup, there were some super legitimate reasons for him not to accept it. The Macedonians had crushed every force the Persians had thrown at them thus far. Further, depending on the timing of this final offer, they had conquered an unconquerable city, and Alexander had confirmed his divinity at an oracle in Egypt. Our guy was cooked Besides, ancient states, not super good at keeping promises, right? And so the Persians probably would have just resumed hostilities and reconquered the ceded lands at a time convenient to them. 
you know, when Alexander and his forces, they'd be spread very thin trying to defend the new territory. And so basically only by subduing the Persian king and replacing him would Alexander be able to keep these territories safe. Also, he was on a revenge mission with the Greeks. So if he was like, yeah, peace is cool, the Greeks are leaving and they're not going to help defend this newly conquered territory. And so for these reasons, he was out. There are also dramatic stories, you know, on the night before the battle that Darius III learns of his wife's death, and initially he's enraged, super mad. He believes Alexander seduced and or raped his wife, and that eventually, though, he's convinced that that didn't happen and that she died of natural causes or sickness or whatever. And, well, I guess it wouldn't be natural causes, but she died unrelated to any sexual acts. And, you know... Alexander, or Darius was like, Alexander's real for that. If I die, only Alexander can succeed me as great king of Persia. Almost definitely made up, right? Doesn't make any sense. Also, we got stories of panicked Macedonian troops, and then Alexander and Aristander staying up all night, just sacrificing, performing rituals, trying to get the right omens, get the vibes right. Now, once they were good, Alexander fell into a deep sleep and was only roused by Parmenio very late into the day. Most likely, the night before this massive battle was spent the same as that before any other, and at dawn, on October 1st, 331 BCE, the army processed out for what would be the final, definitive engagement between Alexander the Great and Darius III. As usual, our ancient friends have just the most insane stats for the size of the Persian army. Arian says that they had 40,000 cavalry, which, you know, alone would have numbered about the same as the entire Macedonian allied army. Also, not that far of a stretch. That's believable. He then says that they had 1 million infantry. Not possible at all. Diodorus and Plutarch also put the army at 1 million in total. Tertius says 200,000 infantry and 45 thousand cavalry. Last figure is considered to be pretty much like the limit of what could have been supported in the field, but still likely beyond what the capacity of ancient kingdoms to sustain was. What we need to know from these numbers basically is that the Macedonians were significantly outnumbered. Many modern sources would accept 100,000 infantry and 40,000 cavalry. Some would even accept that 200,000 number that we just touched on. But if so, basically, what we're supposed to glean from this is that the Macedonians were outnumbered about two and a half to five to one, and that the cavalry were about 5.7 to one outnumbered. So basically, just, you know, sheer, vast, insane numbers of Persians. And while most of the Persian infantry was rabble and and despite their numbers, you know, most of the Persian infantry was rabble merely there to give weight and awe to the Persian line, also to die when things collapse. The cavalry was very skilled, something we always have to keep in mind, and that a lot of ancient warfare was dependent on the mental game. We also have to remember that Darius III brought some extra toys to bear here. Notably, he had 200 scythe chariots, which were very fearsome. Chariots were basically like, you know, swords, but they're scythes, obviously, hence the name, on the spokes of their wheels, which would just be devastating to opposing lines when used correctly. They also had some elephants, but those were just meant to look scary and don't seem to have factored into the battle at all. Fearing a night attack, 
Much of the Persian army, which had arranged itself the day before, remained active. It was not nearly as fresh as the Macedonians, who obviously had not launched a night raid, because Alexander did not want to steal victory. This also meant that the Persian formations and intent were plain to Alexander and his commanders. As you may recall, one of Alexander's most laudable skills as a commander was his ability to view how the enemy was arranged and glean immediately, or you know, pretty quick, what they wanted to do, giving him an uninterrupted view of his formations and like extra time. By giving him this uninterrupted view of his formations, Darius III was just doing a huge favor for Alexander. Speaking of, Darius III was arranged at the center of his massive horde, once adorned in a way befitting the King of Kings. He was guarded by 1,000 royal cavalry and 1,000 apple bearers, heavy infantry with golden apples as counterweights on the, bite, on the butts of their spears. Arranged by ethnic breakdown along the lines, the first line was cavalry and the next was the corresponding infantry. The right wing was commanded by the seat by the satrap Mazaeus, who had failed to check Alexander's advance in crossing the Euphrates. The left wing was commanded by Bessus, who had some royal lineage and was satrap in eastern Batria. There were archers near the front line, and the scythe chariots were arranged in three groups, 100 near the left flank, 50 in the center, and 50 more on the right. Again, you know, besides the mercenaries and the apple bearers, most of this infantry was useless because they didn't have the armor or armament to match the Macedonians or Greeks in battle. Darius III had learned some lessons from Issus. He armed his cavalry and some of the infantry with longer, with longer spears to combat the length of the Macedonian Sarissa and cavalry pike. He also chose the plane that they were on because it was wide, which would allow him to better utilize his one advantage, which was numbers, and, you know, not bottle up his troops and give Alexander and the Macedonians extra cover as he had at Issus. Further, he had stones and obstacles further he had stones and obstacles removed to make the plane as flat as possible, so that the chariots so that the chariots would be at peak effectiveness. For his part, Alexander obviously can't hope to match the width of the Persian lines, and so he deploys across from Darius III on the, white, on the right flank. The center, as usual, is composed of the phalanx with Hypacephus on the right part of the center under the command of Hephaestion and Alexander and the companions on the right of that on the right flank. For many of the Greek allies in the Thessalian cavalry took the left wing. As I just said, the Macedonian army couldn't match the width of the Persian lines no matter what they did, and so Alexander, for the only recorded time under either himself or his father Philip, so bow, 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 new tactical alert, beating the Nepo baby allegations, shout out Alexander, but he arranged a second phalanx of Greek and allied mercenary hoplites to protect the flanks and safeguard against encirclement. So we got the main line and then behind them, with like a little gap for support in the center, they're not there to support if Darius III's cavalry is able to penetrate either wing. The rear guard is going to turn around and face them, prevent encirclement. And because, you know, obviously, cavalry is not super big on charging dudes with pointy spears. They like to outflank them and swirl around. This second group is going to prevent that. And so there's a sort of square thing going on in their formation. I'll share a picture of that on Instagram, maybe a few pictures to kind of better illustrate it. So be sure to check that out if you are so inclined. After several hours spent deploying, the two sides spent some time studying the other at a distance of a few miles before the Macedonians advanced. 
once again using that eerily silent until the last moment tactics were theirs. Just before advancing, we get some descriptions of Pep Captain Alexander charging up and down the line and selling his troops to honor, to glory, to victory, calling out, you know, lowly soldiers by names and deed, recounting stories of theirs and his own heroics inspiring them. At that moment, an eagle flew overhead and darted towards the Persian lines, and Alexander declared that Zeus was with them and ordered the advance. Alexander angled to the right, driving himself and his forces away from the pre-cleared lanes of the chariots and the Persian center. It also meant numerous times we gotta stop, we gotta re-solidify the formation and prevent it breaking up over the miles it has to cover. Darius sees this and he responds, you know, he wasn't an unskilled commander, and he orders some of his troops to move that same direction to ensure his plan to use the chariots to force the Macedonian phalanx to break ranks and allow the cavalry to penetrate would still work. However, the odd angle which Alexander advanced out forced Darius III to respond, and his men and potluck army were nothing near as trained and drilled as Alexander's army, and so maneuvering them, not going to be easy. Alexander knows this. He's hoping that the lack of discipline will allow a gap to open and that him and his companions will be able to stop on a dime and jet right for that gap the second it opens. However, the gap takes a little longer to open up than Alexander would have hoped, and so the Persian left wing moves to surround the Macedonians. But a force of 400 allied Greek cavalry under the command of Menidas rode out to meet them, because Alexander had anticipated this counter move, and so had equipped Menidas with the power to, if you see this, respond, get on it, and he did. The two sides meet, more Persians come up to join the fray, Menidas and his dudes force back, but then supported by a mixed cavalry and infantry force, and the attempted, you know, surrounding involvement outflankment maneuver dissolves into a fierce battle. At this point, Darius is like, fuck, got a charge with the scythe chariots. And they truly were fearsome. You know, they were heavy, drawn by a team of four horses. They're rattling. They got spikes on the front, spikes on the back. The scythe chariots wheeling, wheeling, wheeling. Horses breathing, screaming, furious. But unfortunately for him and them, Alexander had cooked up a scheme for this as well. For one thing, you know, his deployment at the odd angle had forced Darius's hand sooner than he would like to we're out of the pre-cleared lane, so that diminishes the effectiveness somewhat. Also, they're coming at the Macedonians from further away than they would have wanted. Tiring out the horses, making them not, you know, not as equipped to listen, not as fast. All that good stuff for the Macedonians. And so basically, famously, famously previously in history, these chariots had been defeated by the sealing nerve of Xenophon's 10,000 and 401 BCE. And so Alexander knew that if his wonderfully trained men to keep their nerve, these things would be useless. So, basically, he was like, hey guys, as the chariots bear down on you, what you're going to want to do is open up gaps, these wide lanes in their inner formation, and the horses, they don't want to charge at the pointy spears we got, they're going to want to go right into these newly formed lanes. And that's exactly what happened. At which point the chariots, charioteers, massacred by the support troops behind the phalanx. Sounds awfully simple, 
only possible due to the still and bravery of the Macedonians. This is also an echo of like in a previous battle, if you remember early in his time as king, Alexander and his troops were marching uphill. Their opponents sent wagons careening down towards them, and Alexander was like, hey, just open up a rank, open up rank at the last minute, let the wagon go on through. Same thing here. So basically this meant Darius III's wonder weapon was useless and really ended up inflicting no notable casualties. This meant that when the cavalry rode out hoping to meet a phalanx that had been shattered or at least was, you know, ragged and not in formation anymore, they found a line bristling with spear points and impossible to penetrate. However, despite how well Alexander's plan had gone thus far, one issue with, one issue with it was that it left Parmenio and the Thessalians overexposed on the left, and they were surrounded and engaged in very heavy fighting while severely outnumbered. Also, some Persian units, because Alexander couldn't occupy the width of the plain, broke off to attack the Macedonian camp. At this point, fighting's breaking out all along the line, and Alexander's still waiting for a gap to form in the Persian line for him to march through. He's able to bait the left wing of the Persian line, the one facing him, into advancing, and the cavalry slowly begins pulling away from the infantry. Eventually, a small gap opens up, and though it's not quite what Alexander had hoped for, he leads his companions and any nearby infantry in a headlong dash through it. As Alexander and his companions come careening towards him, driving closer and closer and engaged in fearsome fighting, just sheer violence all around, the king of kings, Darius III, once again, echoing his actions at Issus, turns to flee. Arian has him as the first to flee the field. His flight once again broke the spirit of his massive army, and everything once again begins to melt away, leading to a massacre. Parmenio still hard-pressed fighting for his life on the Macedonian left, and he sends a messenger to Alexander requesting aid. Now, depending on our ancient source... The messenger could not locate the king, who had set off in pursuit of the fleeing Darius III, if we trust Darius. If we trust Diodorus, Arian writes that the messenger did find Alexander, and the king rode back, engaging in the hardest fighting of the day for him, and that many companions were killed or wounded, about 60, including Hephaestion, who was just wounded, obviously. Regardless of the little inconsistencies in the stories, the day was won. Alexander had inflicted yet another blow to the Persian Empire and its great king, and had emerged unscathed. Our ancient sources once again offer a preposterous number of Persian dead and wounded and taken prisoner, and very few Macedonians. We do know that many horses died, both in battle and then mostly after, pursuing the great king as he fled, and that's why he was able to get away, you know, Macedonians didn't have any horses in reserve. And so Darius III lived to fight another day. Now, speaking of horses, I was remiss not to bring up earlier that before you know, during the battle, Alexander rode an unnamed horse, switching to his beloved old friend, now a little washed up friend, Bucephalus, just before the battle. It's also important to note that this battle was particularly confusing because of the great quantities of dust kicked up by opposing cavalry forces. Particularly because, you know, hot, dry desert plain. And the Persians just had, you know, 40,000 horses on this. And then 200,000-ish, you know, 100,000, 200,000 dudes 
not to mention what the Macedonians had, that's a lot of dust. That made sense. This lack of clarity is further intensified by the fact that our surviving sources were just so far removed from the events themselves. But here's what we do know. Alexander was 25 years old and functionally had overrun the greatest empire to his knowledge that the world had ever known without suffering a single true defeat. Impossible and yet done. He'd done it. Incredible stuff. Now, we're going to blitz through a lot of what came after this. Alexander and the Macedonians advanced to Babylon, and the richer cities of famous old empires had been conquered and assumed by the Persians. Darius, meanwhile, fled to Media and then ultimately the heartland of Persia proper and then further and further east. First up for Alexander and the Macedonians was Babylon, a famous, rich, and beautiful city of the ancient world which surrendered to him and was spared the horrors of the past and to come. Babylon, famous for, amongst other things, you know, capital of Babylonia, the ancient empire, also hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. The army spent a month enjoying all the city had to offer before advancing out. Denied the plunder of the great city, Alexander gave a bounty in rewards to his army. This was dependent on rank and not tiered downwards, but even the lowest soldier was given the equivalent of around two months' pay as bonus. Next up on this tour was Susa, which was reached after 20 days of leisurely marching and was once again occupied without a fight. Susa was super rich, one of the treasuries of the kingdom containing insane sums of money, and a vast festival as celebration was held there. While at Susa, 15,000 reinforcements arrived, a slight majority of which were Macedonians. The rest were allies, and again, Alexander and his forces march out, this time to Persepolis. The march to Persepolis saw some fighting. There was, you know, a tribe tried to get a tribute from them. They're like, nah. And the there's like a brief stalemate at the Zadros Pass, which we touched on in the Alexander the Skirmish episode. Now, the commander of Persepolis surrendered to Alexander via letter and bid him to hurry his advance to prevent the garrison there looting the treasury. Persepolis was the most symbolically Persian of the capital cities, ordered built by Cyrus the Great, who had founded the Persian Empire, and finished Darius I. It was a mark of the Persian rise, their greatness, and all they had accomplished. It was not treated well. Its citizenry was, abri- ab- its citizenry was abused, robbed, assaulted, its wealth looted, and ultimately burned to the ground. And that's an episode, you know, we'll cover this story in far greater detail in a later episode. Alexander and the Macedonians de- or de- departed Persepolis for Ecbatana and received word that fewer men had rallied to Darius III than he had hoped, and so he had fled into the hinterlands with around 9,000 men and 7,000 talents. It's hoping to, you know, we're going to stall, resume the war. At this point, Alexander, he's like, hey, we're not having another great battle. War of Vengeance, the Vengeance Tour, it's over, we won. Greek allies, fuck, like, listen guys. Greek allies, thank you guys so much, all your hard work. Clap on the back, here's back pay, here's a bonus. Get out of here, love you to death. The sailing cavalry, he was like, hey, listen, hear me out. You want to re-enlist, here's a huge bonus. In addition to that, here's a crazy salary. If you don't want to re-enlist, hey, God bless Get out of here. Can we buy your horses? Those willing to re-enlist were paid generously, and those who weren't were paid generously for their horses. 
Parmenio was placed in charge of transporting the treasury captured at Susa to Edbatana and Alexander when a select group of elite troops set off to capture Darius III. For 11 days, they marched at a brutal pace, causing stragglers to fall behind and mounts to die beneath them. But more and more Persians began to desert from Darius, coming to the Macedonians, giving them updates how far ahead Darius was, speaking of horrible morale and mass defections. Eventually, news comes of a coup, because our guy Darius, he's like, hey, we got fucking soft. We grew up in these lands, nomads, whore, remember Cyrus? We're soft, we're cozy, now we're going to flip the tables, we're going to be the nomads fighting this upstart great king who's rich, we're going to let them go soft. His boys were not having it, Bessus, the satrap of Batria with a loyal lineage, with a royal lineage had deposed the king and was leading a group of noblemen who Darius III was now the captive of. Set off with an even more select group, leaving Craterus with the rest with orders to follow behind at a good pace. More defectors came and told Alexander. More defectors came and told Alexander that Bessus had gained command once the group had reached Batria, but things were far from okay in that camp. You know, um, Alexander's mistress Barsene, her father was a noble. He had left with a number of dissenters. He's got a little army set up somewhere. So basically. A lot of dissent in this newfound Persian hierarchy. Alexander pressed his men even harder, learning of a shortcut, pressing faster and faster, determined not to let his prey through his grasp. As he draws within sight of the few remaining Persian cavalry with Bessus, they fled. You know, they're broken, they have no spirit. Doesn't matter that Alexander has very few men with him at this point. They might not know to be fair to them, but basically they're just utterly broken. Before the fleeing, they murdered Darius III, wrapping, you know, they stabbed him repeatedly and left him for dead, wrapped in golden chains. Alexander and his forces had been pressed too far, and so they paused, giving the fallen cane a proper burial, transporting his body with respect to his mother and family so that he could be buried with all proper rites. Alexander would declare himself the avenger of Darius III, as well as his successor by right of might, and swear vengeance against the pretender Bessus. But that, my friends, is a story for another time, a previous time, because we did cover it a little in the Alexander the Skirmisher episode. We leave here today with Alexander, king of Macedonia, leader of the League of Corinth, great king of the Persian Empire. Darius III was dead, the great Achaemenid line founded over 200 years before had come to an end, and Alexander was not even close to done yet. So that's all I have for you today. I think we have like five episodes left. Next episode, we're going to be talking about how Alexander administered his great newfound empire, some of the ways he became Persian, so to speak. Should be a lot of fun. But remember, as always, to follow the show on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast and to drop those five-star ratings and reviews wherever you find this lovely, lovely show. So until next time, remember, here's a, a serious until next time, remember, be kind to people, you know, just be kind out there. People, sometimes they just need a little niceness in their life. So why not be that niceness? So, peace.